get thee behind me, Satan. I want to resist, but the moon is low and I can't say no. Get thee behind me. Get thee behind me, Satan. I mustn't be kissed, but the moon is low and I may let go. Get thee behind me. Hello there, everyone out there, and welcome to episode one. Uh, this is the official first episode of Dude and a Monkey. Uh, my name is Ian Loring, and uh, as I always will be, I am joined by... Mark Foster. Yes, indeed. Um, so... Um, me better as, as Dude Foster. Indeed, indeed. And I, well, some might know me better as a monkey with a gun. Whenever I meet people in real life who've seen my Twitter... Uh, profile, they always seem to say, oh, you don't look like your Twitter profile, or I thought I was expecting a monkey with a gun, so, um, but anyway, I, I am taking the reins for uh, this one, uh, basically I'm thinking we're probably going to kind of alternate that week on week, uh, so this is episode one, and um, actually, I think we've got, so, I think we've got a, what, a variety of content on this week's show that will... It, it will be kind of um, epitomise what our kind of ethos is, really, of kind of like, you've got you've got some classy stuff and you've got some probably not as classy stuff, but still, you know, potentially just as good stuff, frankly. So, um, you know, so uh, this uh, this week, our main feature review is going to be of Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Um we're then going to get into a discussion topic, and um, actually, uh, Mark, do you, it, it, this the discussion topic was your idea, so do you want to uh, let the folks what we're going to be uh, talking about this week? Uh, we're going to discuss um, Twilight and the, the hoopla regarding why it polarises sort of people so much. You've got the people that really love it and get so much out of it, and then you've got this batch of haters, and we're going to look up what kind of motivates this such hatred for what essentially is a pretty harmless film series that people are getting a lot out of so why do people hate Twilight so much more than let's say people hated um, the Harry Potter films for instance so that's what we're going to kind of look at and discuss sort of our opinions on why we think that this, this sort of zeitgeist against Twilight is so prevalent out there yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think that should be a good one. We're not actually going to review the new Twilight film, even though I have seen it. So maybe I can bring a bit of that into into that. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Should should be a good topic, that. Um, we're also going to do our um, one old, one new uh, feature that we talked about um, kind of on the introduction sh- uh, show, but we'll kind of get into that again. And uh, we're going to finish... Uh, well, we've also we're going to have some like Twitter questions and things like that, and uh, we're going to end it off with the first part of our marathon, um, which uh, I, I get. I, 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 you know, Paul Thomas Anderson and the work of this director—it's uh, it's quite something. So um, I 
but like we were kind of spitballing ideas because uh, we, um, we we did actually have uh, one director's suggestion, but it came a little bit late from uh, Stuart Barr at Max Wren. So uh, thank you, Stuart. Uh, which we, we may well do his uh, another day, but um, oh, we certainly will. Yeah, and, a brilliant suggestion that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I think maybe the fact that you know the show only just got on iTunes a couple of days before we recorded, um, you know, maybe the fact it's just it's a new show. We didn't get that many suggestions for the director's marathon. But to be honest, I'm hoping that will change in the future. So um, I was kind of, well, we were kind of spitballing, and we uh, came upon uh, upon a mutually agreeable uh, choice: uh, the work of George P. Cosmatos. Um, and we're going to be starting that today with uh, his action film Rambo: First Blood Part Two, uh, which prior to about ten minutes ago. I had never seen before, um, and I know Mark's a massive fan. We'll we'll get into it, but uh, yeah, should be a good discussion. So um, I, I will just say um, you can contact us at uh, dudeandamonkey at gmail dot com. Uh, you can also tweet us at at dudeandamonkey, um, and I think that's, that's that's probably it. So any feedback, any uh, suggestions for, about the show, any just feedback about the show, please uh, email or tweet us. Uh, but I think aside from that, without further ado, uh, anything else to say, Mark? Or no, just just if you like the show, then obviously please sort of give us some iTunes reviews oh, because course, yeah. that gives us more sort of scope out there and then more people will start to like us and it'll inflate our egos even more absolutely absolutely not that they need inflating and also i will say um uh we haven't had it just yet but um hopefully by the time this is up we might have um thank you very much to noel uh noel miller um who has contributed the artwork for the podcast to us uh so thank you noel even though at this point in time we haven't had it yet but that's not a criticism. It's just a thank you. It's just weird thanking him for something that hasn't we haven't had yet. Does that make sense? I'm sure. It, I'm sure it will kick balls. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be fucking brilliant too. So, um, right. Okay. Uh, we'll uh, cut off the introduction there, and uh, when we come back, we'll be getting into the master. Stalking and sneaking. You've wandered from the proper path, haven't you? The problems you have. <laughs> I don't have any problems. I don't know what I told you, but if you have work for me to do, I can do it. You seem so familiar to me. What do you do? I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man. Hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. He's been writing all night. You seem to inspire something in him. Yeah. Mm. Do you linger at bus stations for pleasure? Do you get muscle spasms for no reason? Do you pass failures by the back? You are an everlasting spirit for any I don't believe you. You like to be told what to do. Behavior erratic. You find it. Your life has never stopped. Easy to be fast. By end, are you scientific? It's always been. No, you're not. You're usually truthful to me. Are you unpredictable? I know you're trying to calm me down, but just say something that's true!
Okie dokie. So, lead review, well, the review for uh, this week is The Master. It's directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, also written by him, I believe, and uh, stars Philip Seymour Hoffman, Joaquin Phoenix, and Amy Adams. Uh, story is basically uh, a returning soldier from, uh, it looks like World War II, uh, Freddie Quell, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is uh, finding it hard to adjust to civilian life. He is uh, taken in by uh, Lancaster Dodd, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, leader of a uh, movement called The Cause, and uh, the two start having a relationship with each other, which could prove to be the undoing of them both. Um, so, Mark has literally just got back from seeing the master, and uh, I will also say as well, it's it on our reviews for On Dude and a Monkey, it's going to be all spoilers all the time. So if you don't want to hear, then you better fast forward. So there's your warning. So, uh, Mark, what did you think of The Master? I thought it is um, an incredibly uncomfortable film to watch. Um, not saying that it, it um, that's not saying it's bad. It's just that it is, it is from the word go, there is a, a tension, a nervousness, um, and unpredictability of um, uh, Freddie Quill's personality you you don't seem to know how he's going to react to anything um and because philip seymour hoffman's uh, portrayal of uh, lancaster dodd is is so stoic and so um controlled and then you've got this juxtaposition of of freddie quell it kind of you're always thinking that at some point these two forces are going to just collide uh, and it's incredibly uncomfortable to watch um, because you're, you're constantly on edge thinking when's this going to happen when's what's going to what's you going to do and, and it's obviously it, it's the point of it of, of Paul Thomas Anderson's film that's that tension is, is, is supposed to be there but it's it, it's definitely the sort of film where you come out of it and you, you you couldn't I don't think you could talk to somebody about it for like Five ten minutes. I think you, you've got to let it kind of settle a little bit. Um, it's 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 difficult. I'm still. I mean, I, I I got out of it maybe twenty minutes ago, and I'm still a little bit undecided on what I think about it. To be honest, um, so probably a bit best going back to yourself because you watched it yesterday, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, where are you with it at the moment? I. I'm actually I'm actually pretty comfortable in my uh, in my feelings of it. Um, I I think it's far from Paul Thomas Anderson's best uh, personally. I, I, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, I I mean it's not really a story driven piece, but even as a character kind of driven piece, I thought that. There, there are scenes in it that are fucking exceptional, mm. but it it lost me in the second half and particularly the third act. There, there's I don't know. There's a, there's a sense that Freddie Quell's character kind of is what he is, and for me, it didn't change all that much. Whereas I I thought that. Lancaster Dodd I, I I I don't know I thought it was interesting like the external pressures like m- kind of making him 
crumble a little bit. I actually, in a way, I thought Amy Adams's character was actually more interesting than Joaquin Phoenix's. And because, just because I think there's an awful lot going with her about, you know, is she actually... The leader, the, is she the driving force yes. behind? Is she, is she controlling Lancaster and she's, it, the cause isn't him, it's her... And she's she's the one who controls him. Yeah, I got a sense of that definitely. There's a particular there's a particular scene where um, I think I think it was just after that guy confronts him about um, it being a cult, mm. and she's talking, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is just typing away at a typewriter, and, and I almost it. felt like he was just like basically doing dictation. Mm. Um, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, I, I think, and I, and I think there might even be a bit of a battle going on between them, which I, 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 I mean, one scene I think particularly interesting with that is when they're around the dinner table and, um, his son-in-law is saying he doesn't trust Freddie and Amy Adams is as well. Mm. And then Lancaster Dodd basically verbally smacks them both down, but, but then later on in the film, you know, Lancaster Dodd calls him and says, look, I want you to come over to England. You know, I, I want to see you. And that's almost like he's doing it behind Amy Adams' back. And then yeah. when he gets there, she's there. And then straight yeah. away, it's just like it, you never even feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman was going to give him a chance. No, it was, it was very much like that. I, I think I, I agree. Um, I think... It, with Paul Thomas, I need to set the bar so high for himself sure. now that even this film, which I think is an exceptional film, you, you've got, I think at first you look at what was not wrong with it, but what was not right with it, and then you look what was right with it. I agree with you, it, it was incredibly meandering. Um, it was like Philip Seymour, Paul Thomas has got, had an idea but he didn't have a story. And then he's tried to build a story around this idea, but not quite being able to to fully accomplish that um, or to accomplish it. But the problem is the story isn't as good as the idea behind it all. And I think that, that at points that came across because it, it, it doesn't kind of zip along. It, it has a point where you kind of are going, right, I, I, I got the feeling where he didn't know where it was going. And so there was bits just going where it was like, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, wait a minute, I've got an idea, bang, go, there, that's where it's going to go. Um, and I, I got that feeling a couple of times that it, it, it was it was reaching for something that it, it, it didn't quite know what it was reaching for. Um, it was It was very... Malik in tone at points as well, where it seemed to drift a little bit. Yeah, and uh, I, but I, and I mean, in in some ways, I like the drifting. Like, partic- I mean, particularly kind of towards the start, where it's like you're watching Joaquin Phoenix just kind of like milling around and kind of like getting into jobs and you know, and then getting out of jobs and that that kind of thing. Like, I, I but. I think I, I, I mean, and particularly it, 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 it is the third act for me. It's it's when it's like 
Freddy is basically acting as a bodyguard or something and just like beating people up. It's alternatively, he's beating up those who go against Dodd, but at the same time having a pop at Dodd for being a bullshit artist. And it kind of like, it all just, even even if it wasn't in dialogue, but just in tone, it kind of felt like it was going from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other for like a solid 20, 25 minutes and and I will say, like, the entire England section, to be honest, I could have done without, if... Yeah, I, don't, I, I didn't... I don't see why it needed to be in England. It, it, it just seemed like a... It was. It, it took me back a little bit. There was. It was. was like, what? Why? why I, I, I think we're like, to assume that he's basically been run out of. Fled. Yeah. 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 He's, yeah. yeah I, I, could, I could. I could. I could. I could see that. But then, it, it just. It, it seemed like a little bit of a misstep. That, yes. Um. That he he basically amassed what would be a, a, a complete school, um, in England in in what only seemed like it could be. A couple of months, yeah, um, seems a little bit, a little bit far-reaching. Um, I think the one sort of the, the, the relationship that, that that I would like to have seen developed a little bit more was between Freddie and um, the son um, Val. Yeah, I, I got the feeling there was there was something there that that could have been made bigger. Because his, uh, his last bit, big moment is basically the bit where he says, you know, he's just making this all up as he goes yeah. along, don't you? And, and then he's kind of, he's around, but, like, mm. I, I think it's, and even though, I know that's got to be a solid, what, 40 minutes before the end of the film? Yeah, it, it, it's, it, and, and that's the moment where Freddie kind of gets angry with him, but he's not getting angry with him because of what he's saying. He's getting angry with him because... He started to realise that he's right. That he's right, yeah, totally. Um, and then you've got this this internal thing of, but he's angry with Lancaster because he knows that, it, that he knows that he's bullshitting, but he also knows that that Lancaster is the only person who treats him like a person, and who seems to be. There's a point where he, he where Lancaster basically says to him, "I'm your only friend." Yeah, and I think. Freddy knows that, and there's, there's, there's points where you watch it where you keep expecting Freddy to turn on Lancaster, and he doesn't, and that's where I think the uncomfortableness constantly comes from it, and you keep expecting him to to lash out at him, and he doesn't, and it's it was very interesting. But yeah, I, I, I agree with the also the Amy Adams thing. She's so calculated, it's a very kind of Lady Macbeth kind of vibe to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was was very good. I I don't know. I get the feeling that either there's there's too much and there isn't enough for there to be a full story there, or also as well. I was watching it at points, thinking this feels like a it feels like a mini series rather than a film. Sure, it feels like this this could have been. Um, six-hour episodes or three-hour episodes. It could have been longer. There could have been more to it and more to flesh it out. But I also, at the same time, got the feeling like at point it didn't quite know where it was going. Uh, well, but, yeah, I, 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 I think that's most 
epitomized by Freddie Quell. He starts yeah. he starts off as being like a fixated on sex drunk and he ends the film as a fixated on sex drunk. Yeah, it, 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 he, he doesn't he doesn't get anywhere, which I suppose is, is, is could be part of the the point of it is that you know he went through all the processing of the cause and went through all that, and at the end of the day, he ended up exactly where he was. I mean, it, literally, that last shot is yeah. exactly where he was, you know, and I'm sure that's more just a kind of a thematic idea. But it, it, I don't know. It just considering the fact that, like, because I, I read and heard reviews where people were like, "Look, there's not a lot of story to it. It is a character piece." It's like, okay, that's fine. It is a character piece, but it's a little bit for me anyway. It's a little bit of a fail as a character piece because there's nothing really like Joaquin Phoenix. He's very, 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 very good. He's and in in a lesser actor's hands, I think the overall effect of the film would have been lessened. But there's not much to Freddie Quell. There's not much. There's, 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 they're very. There's no arc to either to, to Freddie Quell. I don't think there's even there's a steady arc to um, Langston, but I don't think there's a big arc no. to him. Um, and that's the thing. I think it, it, it very much. It's not so much of a character study. It's so much as a. These are these people. Yeah. This it, is it, what. It's. It, 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 this is what us ha- This is. This is where what they've done ends, and it's the thing is, it is there's a lot of very good things in this film. It is it's an incredible looking film, and it's an incredibly atmospheric film. Mm. And like you say, there are some magnificent singular scenes in it. The uh, the main standout ones being the first processing scene uh-huh. um, that. Was was fantastic, but I do think that when he has the when it goes to the almost the the flashback, I suppose that kind of took me out of it a little bit. Um, but also as well the the confrontation scene where the guy at the party basically starts calling him out and saying it's a cult. That the, the, is, is very good. The way. Like Dodd speaking, you just hear the guy saying "excuse me" in the background, and you're just yeah. you're just waiting. Like there's there's yeah, because I know you, like you said at the beginning, you found it a very uncomfortable film to watch, and I, I did as well because there there are many scenes where you're just you're you're waiting for the powder keg to be ignited, and it's just exactly, and you've got all these elements coming into it, and I mean with that's with the score as well. I think I mean the score does that wonderfully well um i personally i didn't like the score as much as the there will be blood score but it's still very much of of the piece you know um and and i don't know i i quite i quite like the idea that their relationship is is basically it's almost like uh his boozing is justified by Philip Seymour Hoffman's like delighted reaction to the boozing mm. and for, and I mean like the fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman brings him along in the first place just because of that drink he makes I mean that's literally the only reason why he brings him on board at first and then he tries indoctrinating him but I, I've got one question though that second the kind of the second processing bit where it's like a really long montage of him like uh, yeah. Going from one side of the room to the other, and like the the son-in-law, like say anything to him thing. Mm. What 
what did you get as to the point of that? I think it was the, was the point was I think um, Philip Seymour Hoffman with the with the brother in law that did it the son in law bit. I think he was trying to provoke a reaction out of him. Mm. I think he was trying to get him to snap, um, and I think the the what's the wall, what's the window thing. I think that was basically a representation saying this guy is making it up. He doesn't know why he's getting him to do that. He just is, but he's waiting for Joaquin Phoenix to do something that he can latch onto and go, there, you've done it. And it's the time where he starts, instead of saying what the window is, or saying what the window isn't, he starts explaining what's beyond the window. And you can see Philip Sommer often just kind of go, click, no, that, I can latch onto that. He's seeing beyond the window. Yes, there, there. And it, it, it's it's the repetitiveness of it, and it's the go back and forward, go back and forward. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's actually there was any plan. I think it is just that he's simply making it up as he goes along. And I think that was a perfect representation of that. I think certainly, like you say, I think the the best part of the film is the first hour. Not that there's nothing good in the second hour and a bit, but the first the, the first hour is is, is magnificent. It is really good, you know. And Joaquin Phoenix is it, it, it's very much a character, and it's it's a hell of a performance to come back with from his you know his retirement essentially. Um, because this this really is is it's it, it, it is his first film back since um, the craziness. Yeah, since mm. uh, I'm still here, you know, which which was actually his last film, which actually we reviewed on Cinerama. Yeah, that's it? correct. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's his first film back, and it, it's it's amazing that he's gone from being you know a little bit kind of crazy and very overweight to being extremely crazy and very underweight. Um, I think I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance will get lost a little bit in Joaquin Phoenix's performance because it's a it's a very good performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, but it, it contains less of the the ticks and the um, the character embodiment that that Joaquin Phoenix goes that has with his character. Um, I think it's. I think it was always going to be tough to come back and make a film after There Will Be Blood and to make one essentially about a cult that will be so easily um, compared to Scientology. I think it it's a film certainly that's not without flaws, but I still think it's a very commanding film and it's a very... It's a very ambitious film but what I, I I certainly hope this is definitely for me Philip Seymour Hoffman Paul Thomas Anderson's least control piece it's the least um, story driven piece it's the most it's the one that has the most kind of poetic license to drift outside of um, standardised storytelling and what I very much hope is that Whatever he does next, he goes back to a more story-driven piece and doesn't doesn't flit off into this very very well done 
but very indulgent Malick-esque way of filmmaking. We have one Terence Malick. I don't think that that we need two that will make very similar films. I'd prefer Paul Thomas Anderson to come back with something um, more story-driven and less um, flitting like this is. As good as it is, um, I just I feel that I don't think I could. I don't think I could do another Paul Thomas Anderson like this. No, no, quite. And I, I mean, and the thing is as well. I mean, I must say it's it's one that I'm like, okay, I'm I'm very glad I saw it. I, I mean, I know I've been quite negative on it, but it, it's just because you know the the performances are all great and the cinematography is great. Um, you know, it's the, the, the score is great. It's all all that stuff is just what you expect. It's great. But it is, to be honest, for me, I mean, maybe Sydney aside, it might be my lowest ranking effort from him, to be honest, because it didn't, nothing ever really gut punched me. And there's always a moment, whether whether it's a visual or like a scene or something, that always just like with his work that makes me think, fuck me, you know, wow. And I didn't, I didn't quite get that with this. Um, but I'm still like a solid four out of five. It, yeah. I, I, I think I'm exactly the same place. There was, there's a lot of very good bits in it, but there isn't that bang, that, that, you know, like you just said, that, that bit where, it kind of takes you back and you go, whoa, you know, there isn't, there isn't that with it. And, um, I don't know, I think it, it's definitely going to require a couple more watches before, um, I, I can firmly sort of set and say, right, no, it's, it, it's, it's up there. It, it, I'll be honest, it's not up there with Magnolia, Boogie Nights, or, or There Will Be Blood. It's not to that level. But, few films are you know that's, that's yeah you know if you say let's say you said um of paul thomas anderson's films they went sydney the master punch drunk love magnolia bougainite stale with blood and that's not my order but let's say that could be conceivably a lot of people's order that wouldn't it, it, it would still be a four out of five film. It would yeah. still be an eight, eight and a half out of ten film. It's just that he, the bar is so high with him. Um, when you look at the films he's made, it's, 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 you, you always, you're always comparing them to the other films he's made. And maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you should be comparing them to other films that have been out this year. You know, it's, it's still, I think, one of the best films I've seen this year. And, you know, yes, it's not as good as maybe three, four of his other films, but, you know, it, it, it's difficult, I think, uh, because you're always going to do that. You're always going to compare it to his, his other films rather than the other films of, of kind of, um, of that year, of this year, of this past couple of years. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, in terms of ranking against other things from the year, I'm fairly sure this won't even be in my top 20. Um, like, But at the same time, I still have an awful lot of time for it. 
it, it's just, I, I don't know. 2012 has been a really, really, really good it's year. It's been a really, really strong year. Yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely think I have to see this again. Uh, at the moment, I, at the moment, it's, it's probably just inside my top 10. But, um, I don't know. It's the sort of thing where if I see it again, it could shoot up into my top five, top three. But I could also see it again, and it could, it could veer out. So I, I definitely think I need to see it again. Like I say, it's if you were to say to me, if people were to say to me, should I go and see it? I would say, oh god, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, you should go and see it. It's an incredible film. Um, if people say, is it the best film of the year? No, it, it's certainly not. No. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's interesting. Yeah, I think we are at the, uh, uh, the same place on it. Uh, fair, enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so uh, that was our review of The Master, and if you've got any uh, feedback for that, uh, dudeandamonkey at gmail.com. But um, shall, we, shall we move on to the next section? We certainly should. <laughs> It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick to manage it. You'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle anything. Action. <laughs> Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back for just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit. The Adventures in VHS podcast. Join me, Noel Miller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures in VHS or visit adventuresinvhs.com. Okie dokie, and we are back, and it is time for One Old, One New, and uh, even though I'm taking the reins, I think I shall throw it over to Mark to start. So, your One Old uh, for this week, sir. Uh, my one old um, follows a theme from the, the movie we've just talked about. Um, I've decided to revisit uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights from 1997. Um, this was, I think, like many of the first films that I sort of watched of Paul Thomas Anderson's, despite the fact that it actually being his second feature with um, Sydney, aka Hard Eight, being his first. But I thought I'd give uh, Boogie Nights a, a, a rewatch. It's been... God, it, it's been a, a couple of years since I last watched it, and I spent, you know, from 1997 to probably 2000, I must have watched it ten times. Um, so it's been, been a long time since I watched it. And what what, what sort of first sort of grabs me about Boogie and the first thing I noticed, because it's, it's often strange uh, watching films as you get older that you watched and appreciated when you were sort of in your late teens. I mean, I was sort of 15 when this came out. So I was sort of about mid-teens then. Uh, you start looking at them. I've seen a lot more films. My film palette has grown 
you know, exponentially I, you know, I know a lot more about cinema. I'm not saying I know a lot about cinema, but I know a lot more and you know, you have that world experience. So you view things very differently. And the absolute thing that uh, that, I, that I sort of take away from Boogie Nights is that the film opens with just this, this unbelievable three minute sort of tracking shot where the camera's it's sort of swooping around and it's it's moving around and it's following people but it's going into corners and it's it's almost acting as as if it's a as if it's a documentary crew following these people and it is just for a guy who essentially this is this is it's not his first film but it's his first kind of it's his first it's his first sort of studio film um and it is so unbelievably arrogant and confident that I'm, I'm going to go spoiler alert here, but this is Boogie Nights. Everybody's seen Boogie Nights, and if you haven't, then really, you know, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. But keep listening. Um, the last shot of Boogie Nights is uh, Dirt Diggler's massive wang, right? And it is basically him pulling out his massive wang, going, "Here's my massive wang." The first three minutes are Paul Thomas Anderson basically doing a metaphorical. Here is my massive wang. Mm. This is how fucking talented I am. I have pieced together. You are going to, for the next two and a half hours, are going to watch me basically show you my massive cinematic wang and you're not going to be able to do anything about it Mm. because you are going to be transfixed by what I am showing you. And it just, it bounces from bit to bit. And I mean, this is sort of, this is a couple of years after... People were wowed by um, Pulp Fiction, which is an amazing film. And Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino are close friends, um, but they've always been sort of pitted against each other as sort of the two the two bright shining lights of sort of nineties independent American cinema. And you know these were the these are the two these are going to be the new Scorsese Coppola's. These are the two big ones, and it's like. Paul Thomas Anderson has, has sort of sat down and watched Boogie Nights and gone, and watched, um, sorry, Pulp Fiction, and sort of thought, do you know what? I'm going to fucking top it. And I, I'm not saying he has topped it, but I think that he's he's gone in with that bravado. And when you look back, I mean, look at the cast. If you read the cast out now, just, just some of them. Matt Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, Heather Graham, John C. Riley, Don Cheadle, William H. Macy, Thomas Jane, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Baker Hall, Alfred Molina. You just go through those and you think, geez, you know, that's that's a hell of a cast to assemble. Mm. But at the time, these weren't the household names they are now. Some of them obviously were. Burt Reynolds was, this was like a, it was a comeback film for him. Matt Wahlberg was known as, you know, still was living in the shadow of uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Uh, none of the other ones were really they were all known character actors but weren't the you know the, the household names or the Oscar winners that they've gone on to become now mm. and you know Paul Thomas Tennyson you know I was obviously sat there and gone you know that she works for that and that person works for that and he, he basically has managed to cherry pick this amazing talent that was at the time you know was jobbing around doing the odd film but was mostly sort of doing the the underground New York sort of um, theatre scene and has pieced them together to do a film which is so even when you look back now you, you look back and you think 
God, it's... I can't believe he managed to make this film. It is... It is so on the edge of being an NC-17. It, it's untrue, but you've got... Mark Wahlberg is exceptional, but Burt Reynolds is just... You know, going back and looking at it, he's magnificent. You know, he's... The way he, he takes on... And he takes him on as this... You know, he becomes like a father figure to him. And when you see the bits where he gets angry with him, it is, it's fatherly anger. And then the last sort of where he walks back into the room to sort of say to him, you know, I, I need your help. I, I, I fucked up. I need your help. It's, it's not a, no, it, it, there's a, there's a fatherly thing. He's just, he, all he wanted him to do was ask for his help. Yeah. It, um, it, it, it doesn't go down the kind of expected avenue with that, with that way. Like you think Burt Reynolds is just trying to take advantage of him or anything like that. It, no, it, he, he genuinely loves him. Yeah. And, I, I, and it's the same with, with Julianne Moore. I think she she genuinely she loves him as as a son. But the strangest thing is the way that the only way she can show that that affection is sexually. Yeah. So that's a it's a little bit strange. I found that I found that a little bit that relationship a little bit strange because she sees him and talks about him as being uh, her son. You know, like 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 she feels as if he's her son, mm. but. She doesn't just. There isn't just a sexual relationship there, as on a professional level. There, there is on a on a personal level. There's no relationship there, but they do become intimate on a non-film level as mm. well. Uh, and then you've got you just got so many layers. There's the whole John C. Riley. He's basically he's the comedic relief for the film. Mm. Um, the stuff like constantly trying to get. You know, tell you know that oh yeah, he did that really well, but you should done it like this, and you know, and he's he's he is a bumbling character that he now plays in comedies, but he played it in this film. Um, Don Cheadle, you go back at it, and it's still his finest hour, and I still claim that Don Cheadle is this 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 film is how he's had a career because sure. he was very good in this that. And he's delivered so much crap since <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on Big X? I mean, I, I went back to it and I loved it going back into it, but I think I love it even more now, to be honest. I just think it's it's such a strong film. It has a dip for maybe five, ten minutes where it just goes, where you think, do you know what, it's got a little bit too long, and then it pulls it straight back out again. You think that it's going to... You think that you're going to start going, do you know what, it's... It, it, I want it to finish now, and it just managed to pull itself out. So I, I think it's a it's a strong nine out of ten for me. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm I'm gonna guess where the dip is because I think there's I, I I'm okay with it, but the bit I think you're you're referring to is that kind of like around the montage where um it, everybody's getting a bit desperate and fucked up, like um Wahlberg's like trying to get the those recordings and um. It's like intercut and like Julianne Moore and Heather Graham are like doing all the coke and kind of like talking and like about like being um, like can I call you mum and like things like that. Is it is it that bit or yes yeah yeah it's exactly it's exactly that bit. I don't think that that bit's bad, but I think that's just where it where it dips. But it wouldn't surprise me if Paul Thomas Anderson wanted it to dip there. If it was a if it was a choice where he wanted you to start going 
right, uh, no, I want something to happen. I want it to go now. Because then you have the big Alfred Molina bang, and then it finishes, and you go, whoa. Well, the, the dip's usually in the middle of a film, not right at the end. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because it is basically the Alfred Molina bit, and then it's Mark Wahlberg asking for help, and then it's basically the end of the film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. And it, it just kind of, it, it does kind of creep up on you a little bit. Um, but even for a film that long to hold, um, to hold you completely up until maybe two hours, ten minutes into it, is mm. pretty impressive. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm a massive fan of Boogie Nights. I rewatched it maybe about a month or two ago, um, and yeah, it holds up magnificently well. I mean, I will say, I, it, I, I, I do, I, I agree with it being very, very confident and in, in a way arrogant. But I do think the criticisms of Paul Thomas Anderson just aping other filmmakers a little bit too much is. If any of his films, because obviously Magnolia gets compared to Shortcuts a lot, you know, and it's, yeah. it was basically PTA being Robert Altman, and this one is is PTA being Martin Scorsese, whereas his later films it is him being him, you know. Um, uh, but at the same time, I, you know, it's also just incredibly entertaining, um, and it often manages to be entertaining in scenes where it. It shouldn't be. It should be tense or upsetting. I mean, the fireworks scene is a perfect example of that. It is very, very, very funny. But at the same time, the fact that these guys have gone to this level mm. it is is it, it, it very, very upsetting. I mean, there are obviously moments where um, where it is, it does just get straight up upsetting. I mean, like obviously, like uh, Mark Wahlberg being beaten up and like that whole kind of like the bong on the soundtrack you know and it, it just as it gets more and more desperate and um heather graham uh and burt reynolds in that limo and that yeah the, the kid from her school yeah, yeah. like and the, the way she plays that is sensational and i, I think I, you, you kind of watch it you look at burt reynolds and you think god you know you he seems to be his own worst enemy um in terms of, of, of general because he's so good in this you know i think a lot of the time, I think when you go back to these films, you can sort of, it, it gets lost in sort of hyperbole and it gets lost in itself and it becomes more about people saying how good somebody is in something rather than them actually being that good in something. And I was, I was sort of thinking possibly that, that that could end up being my thoughts, my worry that I go back and go, actually, yeah, Reynolds is good, but he's not, he's not as good as I remember him being. But it turned out that he was actually so much better in it than I remember him being. He's he's fantastic in this film. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, I don't know, the fact he actually came out and kind of shit all over it after it came out, like, saying that he thought it was going to be terrible and whatnot. It, like, what, but, I don't know, just... He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't get on with Paul Thomas Anderson, did he? No, yeah, which I... I the, the, which I, I think he must be one of a few, because, like... I think you can always tell if a director's are not a good person by if people return to work with them. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, people do a lot. You know, yeah. like Philip Seymour Hoffman's been in multiple films of his. Um, uh, Luis Guzman has been in, in quite a few, at, at least two of his films. You know, it, it, it just like, it, it seems like Julianne Moore, obviously, you know, it, it just, it seems like... Hall as well has been in... Uh, oh, of course, yeah. Three, 
Um, yeah, mm-hmm. he's he's not in like his last one with him was Magnolia, I think. But yeah, obviously, yeah. he was in uh, Sydney, um, yeah. Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. So yeah, and John C. Riley and etc. 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 But um, um, should we should we move on from Boogie Nights? I think yeah, I think we should move on to um, what was your uh, new watch? We'll go for. Oh bloody we'll, hell! We'll, oh, switching we'll it up. Flip it. We'll switch it up. All right, then. Um, oh, we're, we're crazy on this podcast. Yeah, fucking right we are. Um, all right, well, I'll talk about something I watched on uh, Netflix US the other night and um, just had to have a little conversation with uh, Donna about this one because uh, she was just on Netflix and wondered why I watched a film called A Good Old Fashioned Orgy. Oh, uh, yes. Um, so, um, yeah, this is on, like I say, it's on Netflix US. Um, I'd heard about this one um but I'd never gotten around to seeing it. But, you know, I, I was timing a few beers and some fried chicken the other day, and I thought, like, this is probably as good a time in any, as any, frankly. So, um, yeah, a good old-fashioned orgy, which um, has got an interesting cast in it, actually. Uh, Jason Sudeikis is the, is the lead, but um, you've also got uh, Tyler Labine, who was uh, either Tucker or Dale from Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Uh, 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 yeah, versus Evil. Uh, Will Forte, Lucy Punch, Leslie Bibb, Blake Bell, um, Martin Starr. Um, it, it, you know, it just a, a lot of kind of slightly hey that guy folks, frankly. Um, uh, David Keckner, who puts in a very memorable minute or so of screen time. Um, yeah, so uh, basically, uh, the story is um, Jason Sudeikis plays this kind of like slightly layabout kind of guy uh his dad owns this like massive house and he has these crazy parties in it his dad's selling the house so he decides to have an intimate get together with him and a few of his friends uh like kind of lifelong friends where they're going to have an orgy and then it kind of tensions and like kind of like unresolved feelings and stuff come up basically um so yeah i i liked it well enough um I, I had a very brief discussion with uh, with you about it um, over over Twitter, so I've, I've got a general feeling for what you thought about it. Um, it there, there were moments in it that I thought were were at flat out hilarious, and they were generally where the film gets quite dirty. I mean, it does get as dirty as the title suggests. But my main problem with it, if I if I did have a, a big problem, would be the fact that I think while the humour and the title and whatnot push things, uh, the narrative really, really, really doesn't. And I was kind of hoping for a, a, a bit more, frankly. Um, it, it it just like every single character arc kind of goes in the exact kind of bits you expect him to go if they have arcs at all. I mean, like Tyler Labine is the fat best friend. You know, there's there's nothing else to his character. Um, there's there's a character who um, has feelings for Jason Sudeikis, his character, who by the at the end of the film, there's about a 10 second scene with that character where things are resolved and it feels far, far too quick. So Jason Sudeikis can do something with another character. It just it it felt very kind of lazily constructed where it was the and like where they hope that the jokes in it will kind of make up for this and for sections in the film they do but in a fair bit of it it doesn't but i, I what did you think mark um well i i watched it um quite a while ago um to be honest um i i'm a bit of a um Jason Sudeikis um fan uh, i think he, he's a terribly watchable um screen presence 
So it was kind of um, him and um, Tyler Levine that kind of drew me to it and thought, oh, I'll give it a go. Uh, this is, it's one of those, there is a fashion at the moment uh, um, with comedy where you get together a group of comedians, none of whom are of the, let's say, the Will Ferrell sort of notoriety levels and stuff like that. But you get together a group of comedians and that's how that that's your film because all these people are funny. And it's a very... It, it, this felt like this felt like a film that should have been made in 1986, uh, but wasn't, and it was made in 2008 instead. Yeah. Um, so it, I see what you mean. I, I, I completely agree with your point. It, it's it goes it goes as far as it feels it needs to go, but it could have gone a lot further. Um, but I, it, the thing is, is for me, it did exactly what it said on the tip. It, it was, it was pleasant enough. I, it was funny enough, um, and I, it was a solid seven out of ten comedy for me. You know, it didn't try. And the thing I liked about it was, is it didn't try and go too dramatic. I think sometimes, and it is, it is becoming a bit of a, um, a bit of a bugbear with comedy for me. I think that. Far, too often the the Judd Apatow model is is being adhered to where well it's got to be funny but it's got to have these dramatic moments as well and yeah. and then what ends up happening is is it ends up being not funny enough to be a comedy and not dramatic enough to be a drama and it ends up just being a film where people will say oh it's really funny because there's funny people in it and funny people don't make a funny film yeah um and that a lot of times happens, um, and then you, you're usually left with hoping that Paul Rudd is going to manage to take you through a film just by the fact that he's a nice guy. Um, and that's what I think a little bit happened with this, and John Sedakis took, took it that way. Um, but but I, I loved it. I, I think I think it's great. I could see myself watching this two or three times, you know, over the next couple of years, just sort of like. You know, but a shit day. I come home and it's ten o'clock. And I thought oh, I just want to stick something on that that I, that I don't have to watch all of, but it'll, it'll entertain me for a little bit. I could see myself sticking this on. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, no, I, I, I suppose so. I, I don't know. I just it was. I thought it was very, very throwaway. Um, but, oh yeah, but, yeah, it's, it's hugely throwaway, definitely. Yeah. But I mean, I, while, I, while it was on, it was fine. Yeah. But I, 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 I'm terrible for, for, for re-watching... Uh, I have, like, comfort films. Films that I, I re-watch that I possibly don't even watch. I possibly just have on um, while I'm doing something. I'm a twat for that. And I think this might end up sort of going into to being one of those films. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, but, I mean, that, that's all I really had to say on it, really. It's it's not a film that provokes discussion like Boogie Nights, frankly. Um, no, it's certainly not, no. No. So, um, let's let's get on to your new for this week, then, Mark. Uh, my new um, is, 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 alarmingly, is actually a comedy. Um, I, I had a few to choose from, but thought that this one would probably, probably the best one to talk about, probably the one I have most to talk about. My um, new one this week was... A film from this year, uh, and it is Seth MacFarlane's directorial debut, Ted. Okay. Which is, I'll be honest, a film that I was, I was actually quite looking forward to. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a, a huge Family Guy fan, but I was a, a big Family Guy fan. You know, I, I enjoyed the first sort of 
three, four series, and I, I've kind of I've run out. The jokes have run their course with me. I'm, you know, I'm I'm to the point now where I don't think Family Guy's gone bad or anything like that. It's just I I have no inclination to watch it anymore. The same has happened with American Dad. It's run its course with me, and I'm perfectly happy with that. But from the trailers, I thought this, you know, I think, I, I'll say, I think Matt Wahlberg could be a comedy genius. And I've just realised the two films I'm talking about are Matt Wahlberg films. Nice. I haven't even noticed that. Um, I think Matt Wahlberg is a comedy genius. I think his comic timing and his deadpan delivery is brilliant. I think that, you know, he's very, he's, he's funny in this. And he was brilliant in The Other Guys. And he was the best thing in Date Movie. Um, when he was at a date night, actually, it might have been my Date own. night, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was the best thing in that. Um, but here, I don't think I need to tell people what Ted's about, but I will do anyway. Um, Matt Wahlberg plays, um, John plays, plays, is it, what's he playing? Who does he play? Who John, does he, John. yeah, John? Uh, he plays John, uh, who is a guy who's not too bright, and yeah, he's John. kind of, when he's young, he's picked on as a kid. He doesn't really have any friends. Parents buy him a teddy bear. He wishes that his teddy bear would come to life and be his best friend forever. And it does. Ted the teddy bear ends up becoming a kind of 80s pseudo-celebrity. Um, and then it flashes forward to 2012. And John's grown up. And Ted's grown up. And they sort of both live together. But it kind of starts impacting on John's relationship with... Laurie, his girlfriend, played by Mila Kunis, mm. um, and it, his life spent with Ted of just sitting around drinking beer and getting stoned starts to have a detrimental effect on his relationship. Um, it, there's not that much to this film, really. It, it, it pretty much that's it, uh, and that's the joke. Uh, I I enjoyed it, but I was a little bit disappointed by it. I, I don't think. It was very funny at points, but it too often went for the the cheap jokes. You know, it, it uh, uh, about sort of an hour into it, I was sort of almost screaming at the TV. We get it. You're a teddy bear that smokes a lot of weed. Now, can we just fucking move on to something else? Because that you you plugged that joke too much it, it's run its course and that started to annoy me a little bit and by the end of it it was a little bit right so was 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 that it you know he says he swears a lot he's kind of he's crude and he smokes weed he's the no the no other development of this character um and then you know then you've kind of got to look back and go hang on a minute this is a teddy bear this is a guy whose teddy bears come to life does there need to be any more development into this? Am I looking for too much from a film called Ted about a teddy bear that's come to life? Um, so, I enjoyed it, but I think maybe Seth MacFarlane has pitched it for, I don't want to say people, I don't want to, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I think he's pitched it for the Family Guy fans of now, not the Family Guy fans of ten years ago. That's interesting. I I don't know. I think if if there is a problem with Ted, I think it's it's the fact that it is a little bit too broad. But then again, in terms of commercial appeal, that's what's made it such a huge hit. I mean, it, it's done 
like ridiculous box office. It's, Jesus, it's done nearly five hundred million worldwide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking oh, hell! It's like Universal's biggest hit in I don't know how long because they've they've had some rough times of it, and then Ted comes along and just like absolutely slams it home. It was in the UK charts for God knows how long. Like when I, I sorry, go on. I, I genuinely didn't know it had been. I, I knew it, I, I knew it had, it had done all right, but I didn't know it had been that successful. Oh, it was huge. That is, that's staggering. What I will say is, slight spoiler alert, but, you know, the movie's taken 500 million. You've obviously fucking seen it. Um, the, the the best, the without question, the best bit in the entire movie is Ryan Reynolds. Uh, yeah. Ryan Reynolds at the party. Because he doesn't even say anything. He just kind of looks at Mark Wahlberg with a, with a kind of a kind of grin and a kind of look of yes, and he, Ryan Reynolds. I'm he, incredibly handsome, but we should have sex later. Yeah, a- it, absolutely. It's brilliant, and it's just the fact because he turns up a couple of times, and each time it looks like he's about to say something, and then but, he doesn't. But then it just kind of cuts away. It's it's yeah. I'm personally my my best bit about Ted. I've got two best things about Ted. Uh, the him versus the duck. So yeah, I know it's incredibly base, uh, but I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, and also the line where the kid um, says, oh, is it a kind of game where you have to wash your hands? And Ted's just like, well, that's a fucking weird question, but okay. <laughs> yeah. and, like, like, I don't know. Just I, uh, Giovanni Ravisi it, it, it plays crazy so well. He plays creepy. The him, the him dancing bit yeah. uh, was, was very, very funny. Um, but there was... There was one, I think, one huge, huge misstep um, that, that I think kind of got me a little bit was the the Nora Jones thing. That was I, I, I was watching that thinking it, it could have just been that he knew Nora Jones, not that they'd had a relationship. I don't. It just that felt a little bit like what fucking no, she's Nora Jones. That wouldn't have happened. <laughs> But, there was, but the Flash Gordon bit was, was amusing. And what I'll say is, I, I think I'll end up watching this film again at some point, having had a couple of beers. I think I'll enjoy it more then. I don't think it was a very good... I watched it on a Sunday night when I was tired and not looking forward to going back to work on Monday morning. So I think maybe I was a little bit harsh on it because I watched it at the wrong time. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it again before the end of the year. Um, I mean, I will say I saw it at kind of like a word of mouth free screening, and there are a lot of people who I thought were probably laughing too much, and that kind of thing annoys me. Uh, well, like people laughing because they think they should be laughing. That, yeah, that, rather than actually laughing because something's funny. Yeah, um, exactly. So I'm I'm gonna watch it before the end of the uh, rewatch it before the end of the year. Um, but I, I I personally I had I had a solid time with Ted. Cool. Right. So. What was your uh, your rewatch? Your old. Um, so when we're not going to do this, we're not going to do this every week when it comes to the rewatch. Just kind of like rewatching one of the, the the director of the main reviews films stuff. But um, to be honest, I haven't done that much rewatching this week. I've been. Um, uh, it might be heresy to say, but I've been on the PlayStation quite a lot playing the Uncharted games. So um, uh, my my. Film watching has actually been a little bit lesser than what it usually is, but um, I did rewatch uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love, um, which is a film I'd seen a couple of times before, and uh, I've always I've always liked it. But um, like 
now that we are, yeah, we know what how Paul Thomas Anderson basically is. Um, it's I, I think it's kind of the slightly odd one out of his films because um, the master in there will be blood, but blood do feel like they're from the same guy, and I think the Boogie Nights and Magnolia feel like they're from the same the, the, the same guy, and I suppose. I mean, I suppose Hard Eight, uh, well, Sydney, Hard Eight, you, you've also got there as well. But Punch Drunk Love, just, it feels like an odd little experiment, which worked really, really well. You know, it, it was basically, can I put Adam Sandler in one of my films and create a kind of sort of mix of Adam Sandler and defiantly independent filmmaking and make it work? And I think he does. And I, when I say Adam Sandler, just be, kind of like the the moments of loud brashness that occasionally come up in Punch Drunk Love, like his occasional shit fits. Mm. Uh, um, but it's it's quite it's quite the film. I mean, like it's it's interesting. I think it's the first one. I, I will say one one part in which it does feel like the work of the guy who did there will be blood in the master is in the sound uh, soundtrack. Like I was watching it in the front room and Donna was in, in here in the spare room where I usually record. And she, she came in at one point and she was like, I've only seen a couple of minutes of, of this guy's films, but does he always have like soundtracks that are really annoying? <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting comment because I could totally see how out of context the, like the scores of, there will be blood and like and, and and the master in fairness and and punch drunk love would annoy the shit out of you because punch drunk love it's basically a bunch of random clattering uh, <laughs> yes. uh, but the thing is it's basically i think and i don't know whether this is kind of like a thought that's widely held i haven't looked into it but the score in punch drunk love basically feels like the noise that is going on inside inside of adam sandler's character's head um it's just, it, it's clattering and it's busy and it's kind of all over the place. But every now and then, like when he's when he's with the when he's with the harpsichord or when he's with Emily Watson's character, it's a bit more peaceful, you know. And, and there are moments of um, kind of non-score music, like that um, "He Needs Me" song that's kind of used in the trailer as well. Um, that that's kind of during a key point where he runs off to try and find her and he kind of flies to Hawaii to try and find, find her and that song's playing. Um, so it kind of, it, it, it it's kind of like a schizophrenic kind of like score, like that oral landscape, which befits his character. Um, I don't know, which I think is really interesting, but I mean, it's all, it also looks fantastic. It's not out on Blu-ray yet, but uh, Netflix US has it in HD and 5.1. And, it, it, I mean, it looks great, and the, the the sound from like the rear channels is really interesting as well. And you know, the, the scores—I I don't not the score. The, the cast is really interesting. I mean, like Philip Seymour Hoffman is basically an extended cameo, but he's mm. it, he's fantastic. And um, uh, the the kind of the scene where they confront each other, the 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 say uh, say it's that's that's that. You know, and like and, and like he, um, Adam Sandler's coming coming out, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of chews him out. And then, like, Adam Sandler's just like, you fucking what the fuck? And for the silly more often, he just goes, that's that. And then just runs off. It, 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 it's great. It, it, it's just, it's, it's, 
it's a really, really idiosyncratic, like individual piece of work. And it, the way I'm, I'm talking about it kind of makes it sound like it might be a bit pretentious, but I don't think it is. It's just, it's a really, really odd character study with a bunch of surreal elements like fit like fixed in there but then at the center of it you've got adam sandler who's fantastic and emily watson who um it it, 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 like there's a kind of quiet quietly heartbreaking kind of notion to her character about like she just wants him to love her which uh i i I think is beautiful um yeah i mean what do you think um i'll be honest i've only actually seen it once um which i'm gonna rectify because i'm gonna watch it tonight to be honest um, I, I loved it when I watched it. I don't know why I've only watched it once. Uh, not sure if I've watched it twice. I watched it in the cinema and I watched it when I first got the DVD. Um, I, I, it's a great film. It, 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 it certainly feels like um, Paul Thomas Anderson has has put some reins upon himself. Not, not a studio has put reins upon him, but he's gone, right, no, I want to make a, a film, Adam Sandler, and that was, I mean, this was it. He wanted to make a film with Adam Sandler. Mm. Um, and he's going, I want to make a film with Adam Sandler. And I want it to be dramatic. But I still want it to be funny. I still want it to be an Adam Sandler film. Mm. And I want it to be short in comparison to my film. He wanted it to be 90 minutes. Mm. And it, it, it's, it's a little bit over, but... Um, it's like ninety six. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson states because when he, he said that I wanted to make a movie, you know, a ninety minute movie, and some smart ass at a what is it said? Oh, actually, it, you know, it's it's ninety five minutes, and he said no, the movie is ninety minutes. The credits are five. Yeah, and that was his response, and it kind of it shut everyone up. But yeah. it was like, oh, he didn't see the credits. He said the thanks are five, is what he said, uh, which was sort of his way of kind of not playing down the credits, I think. Um, so it's it's almost like, like, if, if, like you said, it was an idiosyncratic. That's a brilliant way to describe it. it. It is like that. It's like he's gone and made a project and made an idea, and it's it's like a concept film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the soundtracks, again, it, it, it's interesting, but it's very much of the film. Um and when you look back and look at the, uh, it's John Brian who, who does the soundtrack. You look at his, the things he's done. You know, Hard Eight, Magnolia, Punchdrunk Love, Eternal Sunshine, I Heart Huckabees, Synecdoche, New York, and then a few comedies. And he did the Paranorman um, soundtrack, which is a brilliant nice. soundtrack. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a great film. You know, I think I definitely I need to go back and rewatch it because I, I think I'll enjoy it more watching it again um, now. You know, knowing what. Paul Thomas Anderson has gone on to do since. So, yeah, I, 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 it's a great film that I think kind of gets lost a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it gets forgotten about because it's not, it's not full of the bravado of um, Boogie Nights because it's not as as impressive as Magnolia and as 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 commanding and epic as Magnolia, and because it's not as aggressive as there will be blood mm. um it kind of it gets forgotten about and people treat it as if you know oh well it's that little film that he made you know and it's like no it, it it's a better film than it's ever given credit for yeah I, I i i agree i don't know i think it's i think it's one that's 
do a reassessment, and I, I, I think it will be, you know, I think it will be reassessed. I think the next time Adam Sandler stars in a film where he's actually somewhat celebrated for his acting performance, I think people will bring this up again. Mm. You know, that that will be the time, you know. But, um, yeah, brilliant. So, uh, I don't know, we were trying to make, make that sec- uh, each section about 20 minutes each, but I think we went nearly 40 on that, so we'd better move on. <laughs> Oops. We'll shave ten minutes off the uh, <laughs> off the debate. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, well, well, yeah, okay. That, that, well, shall we get into the discussion then? Yes, let's get into the discussion. Okay, so um, do you want to set this up again, and we'll go on from there? Yeah, right. Uh, time for our, our discussion piece. Um, we, instead of just waffling on about films for you um, for an hour and a half, we kind of want to have a bit of a discussion where we talk about. Not specifically a film, but about a news story or an idea or something like that. Um, we're going to discuss uh, now, just sort of go briefly over Twilight. Not the films, but the the phenomenon, the hoopla that surrounds them. Um, now, to put my point across is I, I've seen the Twilight movies. I've not seen the latest one. I'm, I'm not a fan, but I, I, I don't despise them. I don't think they're good films. But I don't also think they're striving to make good films. Um, I, they're also, as well, I'm very much... I know that they're very much rock, not representative of me. They're not aimed at me. I'm a you know, a nearly 30-year-old you know, married man. Um, these films and the books are not aimed at me. That's not to say that I can't enjoy them or anything like that, but they're certainly not aimed at me. But... What I don't understand is the absolute hatred that some people seem to have for films that I don't think they've actually even seen. So, what's your thoughts on this, Ian? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, the whole the whole Twilight thing. I mean, I think the the key reason why the internet seems to not like Twilight is is because a lot of like the movie blogosphere and whatnot, or at least the people who react to the blue movie blogosphere. I don't think it's necessarily the people who actually write, but the people who react are, I think generally, um, I don't like, I might be a bit of a generalization, but kind of emotionally stunted and can't quite figure out that there are some films that aren't for them. And yeah, so they immediately just, they immediately backlash. I think that, but I think it's interesting. I, I, I think that the kind of place where Twilight sits in terms of film is more generally regarded as more positive now than it was a few years back. Because I think it's safe to say the first Twilight film looks like a TV pilot and is it kind of feels like a TV pilot. And you've then got the second film, which genuinely was one of the worst films of that year. Um, the, the second Twilight film, and I think the reason for that is the director is either Chris or Paul White, so I can never remember. But I think that... Hey, was it Chris, was it? The director, I think, was the only director of, the, of, of any of the films in the franchise who talked down to the audience, who actually thought the 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 audience were kind of drooling uh um, like just lapping up whatever 
melancholic bollocks they um, he could provide them. And so, yeah, like, it, it, he did. He did seem to to play to the stereotype of yes. uh, of, of Twilight rather than to the actual. Um, what was actually going on? He, he, he it would surprise. It wouldn't surprise me is, is if he actually never read the books, just got his assistant to read him, uh, read them, and then just give him the gist. Yeah, because that's. I mean, like Catherine Hardwick. Even though, like the the film, I just I, I thought the cinematography in the in the first one is is fucking brutal. Um, Catherine Hardwick cared. She obviously cared, and I, I don't think the film's good. But a lot of that, I think, is actually down to it is down to production value, like like I think I've already said. Um, but yeah, Chris White's. I mean, like the, the the one scene I remember from New Moon is where literally it's made to appear that Bella sits in a chair and looks depressed for a solid year. Um, <laughs> like it, it literally, it spins around as the seasons change, yeah. and like it looks like she hasn't, and it's. It, 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 it's terrible. It's it's really really bad, and it feels like it's it's Chris White saying, "Well, this is how young girls think because they're all fucking idiots." Whereas da- David Slade, who got a lot of shit when he took on Eclipse because he was um, he was quoted as saying, "I would never get involved in a Twilight movie," but what he did, and I think Bill Condon kind of took it on from there, was I think he played into the more nutty elements of the books and mm. and also made it more cinematic you know and I, I mean i like that that there are moments in eclipse that are genuinely good solid action beats and then bill condon just like gave it the it, it, like, it went in for the nuttiness but also just you know, gave it the production value. Worked with Guillermo Navarro on the uh, on the photography. You know, got Carter Burwell, who scored the first film, and, and and like made it feel more more of a part. And Breaking Dawn Part Two is. I mean, I know we weren't going to talk about the films, but Breaking Dawn Part Two is the best of the franchise. I would still only give it a three out of five, but a three out of five is more of a recommend than it's not. Oh yeah, definitely. Certainly. The thing is, is I think what, what I seem to see is. is Let's be honest. the 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 filmic filmosphere um, of the the blogging community and the, the, that community it is um, it is a very kind of male dominated um, sort of community. I'm not saying that it's uh, that women aren't allowed in it or their opinions are as valid or anything like that. That's not what I mean. What I'm saying is, is a lot of the time it is guys between the ages usually of around sort of mid 20s to to mid 40s there's there's, there's that swing you know that is the bulk of them um and i think a little bit there was a little bit of you say with the chris waits chris waits thing you know he's a terrible director he's not that's not just that he made a bad twilight movie He's made a lot. Of, well, he's made a few bad movies. He's not really made a great movie. The only great movie he's made is American Pie, which you could argue that Paul maybe have more to do with that than he. Mm. Um, but it seems to be that people seem to be angry that teenage girls were enjoying these movies, and that just seems really kind of strange to me. You know, I, I for me, cinema should be for everything. There should be films out there for everybody. You know, cinema isn't just for me and, and and my friends. It's for people. You know, there should be movies out there for people 
stuff like um, Best Man God Hotel for people who are uh, above a certain age. There should be movies like that. There should be movies like Twilight. There should be kids' movies. And the one thing that those movies shouldn't do, no matter which ones they are, is talk down to people. Yeah. You know, kids' movies shouldn't talk down to kids. And a lot of them do. And that's why a lot of them piss me off. But the Twilight movies, they don't. They, they give the audience what they want. And the thing is, is if you don't like it and you don't want to see them or talk about them, just don't. It's yeah. as simple as that. Scroll down faster on your Twitter. If you see Twilight, just don't don't read it. I just think it's the same as what I was saying uh, the other week. I think people, they kind of got dragged on in this wave of hatred and thought, yeah, it's shit and we need to... We need to go against this because it's terrible. And, you know, all these these girls are just liking it because they like, you know, because they fancy, what's it, um, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson yeah. um, Taylor Lawton. And Taylor Lawton is a shit actor. Yes, Taylor Lawton is a shit actor. But for God's sake, you know, there is a small community of us that like the films of Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. Now, let's face it, the guy can't act for shit. But we like his films. But... I'd never expect a 15-year-old girl with a Twilight book under her arm to like Death Warrant. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. why, you know, we, we need to remember that, that cinema, you know, is for everybody, and it's all out there, and just because just a certain select group of us don't like these films or don't see the relevance of these films doesn't mean to say that there isn't a large group out there, and there is a fucking huge group out there, because Breaking Dawn Part 1 made a lot of money. Um, I just think that, that people need to just allow cinema to be for everybody, and just calm down a little bit, and, you know, instead of spending your time bitching about Twilight, why not spend it talking about something more positive? It seems to me we seem to be hitting this wave of negativity at the moment, and it just needs to kind of balance off a little bit, and we need to kind of get back to why we love cinema, not to why we hate the idea of cinema. It's not even that people hate the films, it's people hate the actual idea of the films. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the, the point you made earlier on about the fact that people just probably haven't even watched it is is incredibly valid as well but i mean i think maybe what's kind of turning the tide on the on the twilight film slightly at least i i don't feel as much hate out there for it as this a couple one of years no I, I i don't at all no it's just it's the, the films have gotten better that's that's the thing like if anyone was ragging on new moon because it was a shit film i'd be like yeah all right fair enough you know um i mean breaking dawn part one is not a good film, but it's not a bad film. No, I, I, it's not terrible, you know. And I think they are pushing. I think in a way, like the Twilight films have done an awful lot to push some boundaries as well. Like Breaking Dawn Part One, there's some fucking messed up shit in that film for a 12A. There and is, yet, yeah. And yet they got away with it. Breaking Dawn Part Two, there, I mean, mild spoilers. There's a shitload of decapitations. I, I love a good decapitation. Yeah, I mean, they're bloodless, but I think there's probably about 20. Um, and they're pretty, they're pretty crazy. So, I mean, I think it's interesting. It seems like they've taken on board the, the idea that 
it, it, they're not for everybody, and they've tried to make them more for everybody for commercial reasons as much as anything else. And and to be honest, I like it's it's weird. Conversely, I like the idea of like you know Twilight fans having this series of films, and if they love them, then you know that's great. And this new one will be catnip for fans. I mean, like I think they end it in a really really strong and actually in a kind of a way slightly daring way. Um, uh, but but then I, I mean at, at the same time it is the broadest of the films. I mean I think this and Eclipse are probably the two broadest because they've got the most action. You know I it's I I don't know it's and I think like the boys will have less of a problem with it. But what I also think is it I I also think in a way. I think maybe online criticism has gotten more mature since the first Twilight. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 in terms of like actual writers, I think that you're getting writers now who have grown up through the early film blog kind of world and have seen all this stuff and are trying to trying to be more open-minded and being broader. And I think that's why you're getting. And not nearly as many articles about like people knocking Twilight. To be honest, the only the only article I've read of someone kind of having a, a pop at Twilight over the last few days was actually someone from the Guardian doing uh, kind of like they were like a girl from the Guardian doing a uh, like she sat in on a Twilight marathon thing and like interviewing um, like the, the the people and making them all look like a bunch of freaks. Yeah, it, there is there is a little bit of that. It, it, it's it's kind of it is it's become a little bit like this generation's kind of it, it's replaced Harry Potter, but with Harry Potter there was there was always there was never the nastiness towards it. No. There was never the pork fun because oh you know adults read the books as well and you know they were family films and because these films they claim are made for a very sort of niche market, you know a niche market that spent you know close to. 700 million on going to watch these films mm. um, I think they, 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 did, they did very well in picking you know uh, Bill Condon is a, a very interesting choice to pick to direct this film you know, when you look at his other movies you know like stuff like Gods and Monsters and the others and Kinsey and, you know these are these are interesting movies and the you know the, the phenomenal um, Candyman sequel which is just you know an out of this world movie have you ever seen it? Uh, um, Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flash. Yeah, Farewell to the Flash, yes, yes, sorry, mate, I had a brain fart for a second there. Um, What a a terrible movie. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. But it's it's an interesting choice, and David Slade was a great choice to kind of, to pull it back. So, but I think we've we've kind of established that, that both of us are very much on the point of, you know, the Twilight movies aren't, Overall, as a series of films, they aren't a bad series of films, but they aren't a good series of films. But they most certainly aren't aimed at the people who are criticising them. Yeah, no, I, I just, I, I think, in the end of the day, you know, the, the, the Twilight films they are now done, you know, and and the the internet move on yeah. to hate something else. I, I, I think, I think, give it another two, three years, I think there'll be another Twilight film. I don't. The thing is. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not seen the last one though, so I don't know they, whether or not that kills that. I don't want to spoil anything. I mean, they—it's interesting. I thought they left more doors open than I was expecting. 
but I don't think Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson will do it anymore. I like they. There's a little bit of contractual obligation uh, to to them, I think, and I think now they're free of it. The fact that they've been doing such different work, like defiantly different work from from Twilight in their other films, I, I think says an awful lot. I, no, think, like, I think very much. I, I think Stewart kind of from from just it's just a personal perception. I think a little bit she hid behind the the contractual obligation. I think she she liked the fact that she had these films to fall back on, and it gave her the opportunity to go out and do more interesting works. Um, but I generally got the feeling that Robert Pattinson made one film, signed up to to do you know to do other films. And then it got out of his control, and he was only doing them because he had to. Not saying that he was phoning it in or anything like that, but I just get the feeling with him that I think, yeah, in, in let's say in five years' time, I could very much see if they went back to him and went, "We're going to give you twenty million to do a new Twilight movie." I think he'd be no. Whereas I think I could see Kristen Stewart was coming back to saying, "Right, we're going to give you twenty million to do a new Twilight movie." I could see her going, uh, go on then. That's you know, I, I could see it more from her because I think she she enjoys being a, a movie star more than Robert Pattinson seems to enjoy being a movie star because it gives her the opportunity to wallow in how terrible it is to be a movie star. <laughs> Whereas with Robert Pattinson, he very much, he wants to be an actor. He doesn't yeah. want to be a movie star. And I, I, I you know, I can see the distinction between the two. Well, I don't know, but I mean, then again, though, I mean, you got Kristen Stewart. I mean, in case you was in Snow White and the Huntsman, which was like, you know, a big old blockbuster thing, and you haven't seen Robert Pattinson do any other kind of blockbuster work. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, like she did on the road, you know, and and I mean the Runaways, and I, I, I it just it seems like there's. I think she's got a little bit more going on under the hoods as well. Even though I agree, I think. Yeah, Pattinson is definitely the one who wants to actually be a serious actor more. But I don't know if that's interesting. I think I think very much that, yeah, I think she does. You know, when you look through her career, she's picked some very, you know, outside of the Twilight movies, she's picked some very interesting films. I mean, if you go from 2008 when she was in Twilight, you know, you've had Adventureland, Runaways, Welcome to the Rileys, you know, you know, yeah, the Snow White and the Huntsman, but on the road, you know, these are interesting things. But as well... She's the sort of person where you could see interest waning in sure. her without the Twilight movies, and then without having that to fall back on, and knowing that in two years, every two years, she gets to make a Twilight movie. That maybe that's when she'll sort of start looking back and going, "Well, I'd like, I'd like that, I'd like that comfort blanket here again." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. Right. Um, Right, well, that was our debate, or, or, or not our debate, our discussion on Twilight as a as a general kind of idea and concept, and you know why people might have issues with it. So, uh, Ian, do you want to take us into our first movie of our George P. Kuzmatos marathon? Are you tired of film podcasts where the hosts exist in a constant blissful state of agreement? I mean, the main the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. Well, you're in luck. Let me introduce you to Chinstroker and Punter. One is an ex-film student with a penchant for David Lynch and art cinema. The other is a man on the street. Listen in perplexed and horrified terror as 
we tear apart one film a week. Just really, it's isn't. not visually striking. No, just just getting confirmation. It's just in, that's the third time though. I mean, am I, this is on. You can find us at chinstrokerversuspenser.podomatic.com. So come and share the victory. If you could fuck any man in film, who would it be and why? My answer is Lance Henriksen. Oh. He wouldn't tell. He looks like somebody. <laughs> he looks like somebody you can keep a secret. Uh, 1985's Rambo First Blood Part 2. Um, story by Kevin Jarre, uh, screenplay by Sylvester Stallone and James Cameron. Um, do, you know, do you know an interesting fact here? Go on. Do you know how you can split this, the, the screenplay? The action bits, Cameron wrote those. The political bits and everything like that, Stallone wrote those. That makes complete sense. That makes complete sense. Um... Yeah, so, uh, story is, at the end of Rambo First Blood, or actually I should just call it First Blood, um, Rambo is, it kind of goes off peaceably after basically destroying a small town, uh, after going a little bit nuts, but for very, very good reason. Um, His former colonel, Troutman, played by Richard Krenner, um, finds him in a prison yard and offers him a deal if he is prepared to go back to the shit to um, 
try and find evidence of prisoners of war still being kept in camps, he may be given a presidential pardon. Uh, when uh, he gets to uh, Nam and goes out on his mission, though, Rambo finds that things are a bit more complicated, and especially when you've got a Coca-Cola-swilling corporate douche-alike Murdoch, played by Charles Napier, around. Um, so, um, yeah, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Um, I, I, I watched First Blood for the first time ever uh, a couple of months back. I'd seen the kind of the more recent Rambo in the cinema, but never actually went back to him. And I need to rewatch Ram the, the the more recent Rambo because I wasn't a fan of it, but I think I might be now. Um, I really, really, really liked First Blood, and I think that First Blood Part Two. It, it's interesting that it's called First Blood Part Two because it's a very kind of in. In terms of visuals and action, it's quite a different film from First Blood. But the the kind of the feelings, the the kind of the the character of Rambo and what he's gone through and the whole kind of Nam backdrop is very thematically fitting with First Blood. And it makes a really, really cracking double bill, um, which I... I, I, I really, I really, really like First Blood. I really, really like First Blood Part 2 for slightly different reasons. Um, but, I mean, I, I know your thoughts, Mark, but come on, uh, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I, I'm going to lay it straight out there. Um, First Blood is probably my second, possibly third favourite movie of all time. Um, and I will also throw in the distinction, there is the obvious distinction between what is the best movie of all time and what is your favourite movie of all time. If I was to pick the best movies of all time, First Blood would still be in a top five. I think it is an absolutely astonishing movie. Um, and First Blood Part Two, like you say, it does it, it does carry. Uh, it's a different film. It's a different type of film. This is very much more an action film. But the character of Rambo is still very similar to the you know. The slightly broken character of the first movie. The first film is a very, it's a very sad film, mm. um, and he's he's this broken guy who was a kid sent to do these things. Well, not said he volunteered to go and do these things, and he did these things that the country asked him to do, and he did them very well. And then when he came back, he was the bad guy, and he couldn't understand it, and he's gone to prison and he's been back in the routine and you know at least you know at least you know, he says at the beginning you know, at least here i know i know where i stand you know mm. he's got a routine he knows what people think about him and then given the chance to go back to vietnam it, it's for him it's it's a chance for him to go back to where he was important and where he did you know he felt like he belonged and he felt like somebody cared about him and then first part two is it's about the breakdown of that you know the first one was about how society treated the uh, the americans uh, the vietnam vets when they came back and the second one was you know it, it, it's not as political and it's not as intelligent as the first one but it's almost how it's when Rambo realizes that no, the army didn't care about him. They were just used as tools 
and the only person that he cares about and that cared about him is Troutman. Mm. And that's the only person that he knows that he has in his life that he he cares about. And there are slight within the film there are slight nods to um to you know, the fact that he feels he's got nothing to go home to. Um and Stallone has always said that, that you know that Rambo you know that, that that Rocky enjoyed playing Rocky, but Rambo is he thinks it's his best character, and he feels that there's there's a there is there's a there's a film that isn't an action film in Rambo. There's a there is a film there that is a dramatic piece, which is him confronting his father, and that there's something there, and there are nods to it more in this film. Than in any of the other films, you know, despite the fact that the, the the last shot of Rambo is him walking back to the farm, and that in First Blood there's him not going back, you get the feeling that in this film that that there's something else there. Maybe it's just I'm picking that out because I see more in Rambo than most people, but there's definitely that. But also as well, this is a better film than people ever give it credit for. You know, there's a lot of action in it, and there is a lot of. Um, there's a lot of platoon-esque shots in it, despite the fact the films were made the same time. You know, there is a lot of there's a lot of helicopters swooping over rice fields, kind of thing. You know, there is a lot of that, and the action is good, and the politics of it do come into it. But every time I go back and watch this film, I forget how good a film it actually is. Um, it- because it, it is cracking. I mean, and, and I mean, I, th- I think to bring Cosmatos in, in, into this as well, like the, the the way he's able to juggle the more kind of visceral, badass action beats with the the kind of the more political kind of points that that Stallone wants to make with with this uh, with these films, I, th- I think is really interesting. It never it never feels like it's a lurch. Like it's a lurching tone. It just, it, mm. it, it because the thing with Rambo, and I, I, I like what you're saying about um, you see more in the, uh, the character of Rambo because that's the thing with First Blood, you really, really get on Rambo's side, and yeah. w- with First Blood Part Two, you, you, you're already there, and then you, like because I mean the film's basically split into two halves, and it's basically at the halfway point that. Um, the helicopter comes in, and then um, Murdoch says abort the mission, and then um, and then they fly off, you know. And uh, the second half, I mean, it, it, it's kind of set up at the start where um, Rambo says just before the opening titles kick in, "Do we get to win this time?" Mm. You know. And and then the second half of the film, apart from the the one moment with the love interest getting killed off, which really surprised the shit out of me. Actually, I did not see that coming. Um, the, the fact that the second half of the film is basically Rambo getting revenge for the American public at that time, or the American army guys at that time, who were feeling disillusioned, because he basically, in his own little microcosm way, wins the Vietnam War back, wins yeah. the Cold War, and <laughs> gets revenge against the bureaucracy of the American military. Mm. It, I mean, it's it's very indulgent, but in a cathartic, fucking yes way, it works. And one of the, and some one of 
the things that Cosmatos does really well, as well as the really solid action direction. It's like moments like where um, he's being told by Stephen Burkhoff. Um, the Russian Stephen Burkhoff, even though that's not a Russian accent, I don't know what he fucking accent. He sounds German. Yeah, he does. It, he like, sounds I, German, doesn't he? Well, do you know, there's, well, Stephen Burkhoff came in very late to this film um, because originally uh, Dolph Lundgren was cast in that role. Oh, that would have been fun. And then when um, Stallone found out that it was the same guy who was going to be playing Ivan Drago, Stallone said, we can't, we can't have that. We can't have this and that in the same film. We know, it, it, you know, around the same time. It, it, it'll, be, it'll be weird because it'll be me against him there and then me against him here. Yeah, that makes sense. So Burkhoff was brought in quite kind of late. Yeah, but I mean, like in 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 that scene, you got Burkov kind of telling them, like you give, you tell them over the radio, or oh, this guy's going to get it. The way he like he asks for Murdoch, and it's like it, it's really really slow, and it's really tense. And then like the way he just grips the microphone, like yeah, it's all the top style. And, and he's just like Murdoch, I'm coming for you. You know, it it, it, it it's like the way Cosmatos handles that. And like how tense it is, but then how just cathartic that individual moment is. Like the the catharsis in the second half of this film is fucking incredible. But but I mean, you have got badass action, which made me laugh with glee. Like there's a moment where um there's this guy kind of standing, and there's like mud behind him, and then suddenly you see Rambo's eye open up, and yeah. and he's just hidden in that. And it's fucking amazing. And just like all the training that Rambo's had, like the fact he's good with guns, he's good with knives, he's good with like this just getting himself in the shit and hiding and all that kind of stuff. It's it's just incredible. There's a surprise montage where it's just he keeps appearing out of places. And you know, that the him covering himself in mud and appearing behind there, that's two years before Predator, where, you know, Schwarzenegger does it in Predator, you know, and there's so many, and there's a great moment where you've got the douchebag uh, Vietnam general who's shooting at him, and Rambo stood there, not even moving, not even flinching at yeah. the fact this guy is just shooting at him, and he just gets out an arrow with an explosive attached to it, mm. and then shoots him with the arrow, so he completely explodes, and it's that moment where you kind of go, yes, yeah. Even the, the the bit at the end where he goes in the room with all the computing bits and just goes batshit and starts <laughs> shooting it, that could be a, a a laughable scene, but it isn't. It, it's just him. It's his way of being angry. Yeah. Because you know that he, you know, he's not going to kill anyone. Like um, he's not going to kill anyone who technically is on his side. Yeah. Yeah. So. He's not going to go in and kill uh, Murdoch. He's not going to kill the douchebag from Karate Kid. Mm. Um, he, he's not going to do that. But he—that's the way of him getting back at America—is to do that. And um, I think you know, like you say we, we, we are discussing technically, you know, the George Peak. It's a George Peak as Matson. That's why we're discussing it. Um, but he has this way of, um, of whenever he's um, shooting Rambo. He manages to get him. He's the centre of the picture, yeah. and the picture follows him. And he—he's a director, and he, we'll, we'll come across it as we discuss more of his films. Who he uses very static shots, 
but from lots of different angles. I mean, there's a bit at the opening bit where Troutman's talking to Rambo through the defence, and it's shot from four angles. Yeah. And it's not fast cutting, but it does keep cutting to these different angles. So you've got, there's an angle where it's been shot and you can see Troutman's face. Then there's an angle where it's shot and you can see Rambo's face, but it's through the fence. Yeah. Then there's a shot where you can see both of them and it's above the fence. Then there's a shot where you can see it from a slight distance and you can see both of them, but you can see the barbed wire running across the fence. And it's very much to say, look, he's encaged in this. But you, it's kind of saying, look, he's encaged in all this, but if he wanted to, he could get out of this at any point. He could be out of here yeah. in seconds, but he doesn't because he's comfortable with being here. Uh, I, like I say, I, mean, it does, I could go on for, for hours talking about any of the Rambo films, um, but you know we're, we're very conscious that we want to keep this to around sort of an hour and a half, and I know that we're you know that we're, we're going beyond that. So what I will say is, is, you know, as a Rambo film from the series, I think this is probably the second strongest of the four films. Um, but also as a um, as a cosmetics film, and this was I think really his first big film, and it was it was actually uh, it was Sage Stallone who, who recommended um, him to his dad to make this film, really, uh, and said you know he'll be you know he's a good director, he, 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 his framing work is good and his pacing is good, and I think you should you should meet him and. Um, Stallone met him and got on him really well and said, no, do you want to direct this film? And he said, well, yeah. And it was really, it was his first kind of, I think it was his first proper American movie. You know, he'd done of unknown origin with, with uh, Peter Weller, and it, it, which is another brilliant film. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I love the film. I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And I remember having a, having a discussion about First Blood at uh, Fright Fest, yeah. When I was saying you you you've got to watch it, but you if if you watch it and you don't like it, you don't tell me you've watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I I was a massive fan of First Blood and First Blood Part Two is awesome too. Right, I think that's 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 the, the our first George uh, uh, Speaker's Matters film that we were very much very much fans of. Um, yeah. And I think next we are going to be covering... Um, are we doing Cobra next? Yeah, I was thinking it was yes. going to be Cobra. Yes. Uh, anything with Stallone, it's good by me. Which I have seen before, and I'm quite looking forward to rewatching that too. Me too. Um, expect us discussing the wonders of cutting pizza with scissors. Yeah, boy. Um, okay, so to finish off the show, we've got a couple of Twitter questions. Yes. Uh, so, at Glenn T. Chapman says, asks, if you had to choose one film character to be your master, who would it be? Um, hmm. One film character to be my master, who would it be? Um, I would say... Oh, God, that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a difficult one. Um, have you got any ideas? Um... Not really, to be honest. I mean, I wouldn't say no to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in The Master. Um, he's very, very, very charismatic. He's very, very charismatic. But, um, you know, um, I, I'm going to go for Lopan from Big Trouble in Little China. 
That's a good call, actually. I, I, I think it'd be pretty cool to work for him. Because I'd, I'd, I'd get to wear one of those fucking cool hats, I'd get some mystical powers, and um, I'd get to kidnap Kim Cattrall. That's solid. Um, actually, or, or, or actually, or actually, just Kim Cattrall in, um, in Big Little China. Nice. I, actually, I, I might say Aldo Rain, um, Brad Pitt from Inglorious Bastards. Um, oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, oh God. Um, <laughs> what? How, 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 could, how could we forget um, Liam Neeson in Batman? And he, his name's gone from my head. Oh, right, uh, right, right, that's our goal. That's our goal. League of Shadows, man. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. That's not bad. Um, right, uh, I've got a question from somebody. Oh, go on. Uh, from Lizzie Beth, uh, a friend of mine, has said, um, what's the point in remakes, uh, i.e. stuff like the girl with the dragon tattoo remake? Um, I can answer this, uh, and then you can answer it, obviously. But um, the point of remakes um, like that, I think, is twofold. One is because it puts it across to an American audience or a... English-speaking audience. Yeah. That's a, the one point. I think with something like The Girl and the Dragon Tattoo, I think occasionally you get one, um, and we've got it coming up with Old Boy, where I think you get a certain director sees something in a material that they would like to make. Um, and it's not necessarily just, let's remake that for the sake of it. could not have said that better myself, to be honest. I've got nothing to add there. <laughs> right. What have we got next? Uh, well, the last one I've got uh, from Gary McConaughey. Uh, um, he asks, what is your favourite film starring a monkey? Uh, Speed Racer, done. Oh, that's a good one. Um, my favourite movie starring a monkey is... Beneath the Planet of the Apes. That's pretty solid. I, I, I love that. I love Beneath the Planet of the Apes. It's a great film. I've got one more. Uh, I've got... I've got Two more, but they, they can act as one question. Uh, from uh, Max Renshaw at Bar, um, it's who is cinema's best dad, and also conversely, who is cinema's worst dad? Um, cinema's best dad is um, Griswold from. Fucking bastards, yeah. Um, the vacation movies, and cinema's worst dad is. Gregory Peck from The Omen. Oh, good, good call. But I was, I, I was gonna go for Ray Winston's character in Tim Ross' directorial debut Warzone, which I say to anybody, do not watch. It is a thoroughly hideous movie. Bloody hell! It is. It, it's you know, you know how um, Brad thinks about Seasoning House. Oh shit! Really? Yeah, that is how I think about Warzone, and I, I I'm a big Tim Roth fan. I'm, I'm not a very big Ray Winston fan, but is an utterly hideous film that is completely pointless in its um, in its depiction of rape and of a father raping his daughter. Horrible film. And that's going to do it for episode one of Dude and a Monkey. Yes. Um, we nearly yeah. got through an entire episode without talking about rape. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll have to try again next week. Oh, dear. Yes. Uh, so uh, coming up on next week's show, we haven't decided the discussion topic yet, but like we said, we'll be uh, taking a look at Cobra for the next uh, uh, part of the George P. Cosmatos marathon. And we will be reviewing David Ayer's um, kind of first person shot, interesting looking cop thriller end of watch. 
but yeah, so uh, you can contact us at dudeandamonkey at gmail.com. You can tweet us at dudeandamonkey. And any closing remarks, Mark? Again, um, like I said, just we're going to plea for iTunes reviews just to get us up there. Any feedback to the show would be great, so we can start reading it out on next week's show. Um, and hope you enjoy listening to the first full proper episode. Um, we're, we're, we've got a good feeling about this. Yeah, absolutely. Fucking A. Well, um, that's it, folks, and we will speak to you next week. Bye.